Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In April 1861, following a steady barrage of artillery that left him unable to resupply his garrison, the commander of the Union outpost of Fort Sumter in Charleston's harbor surrendered his command to the new Confederate States of America. Major Robert Anderson was a veteran of the Second Seminole War. While he ordered his men to return cannon fire to the onshore batteries, he specifically prohibited shelling of the heart of Charleston with the loss of civilian life and structural destruction that would have followed. By acting in response to what the North viewed as Confederate States of America provocations, Anderson positioned his command to be viewed as both a victim of Confederate aggression and as a heroic defender of sovereign federal rights and authority. Who was Robert Anderson? And how did his assignments and a longer military career shape his temperament as commander of Fort Sumter? And isn't this the Seminole Wars podcast and not the Civil War podcast? Right. Dr. Wesley Moody recently in early stages for a biography of Major Robert Anderson. Since 2007, Dr. Moody has worked as a professor of history at Florida State College in Jacksonville. Dr. Moody specializes in 19th century American history, specifically military. He has embarked on a full-scale biography of Anderson, whom, incredibly, has never had a biography written about him. Our listeners will find it of note that Anderson enjoyed extensive service in Florida, fighting at the Battle of Loxahatchee near present-day Jupiter, Florida, and serving on the staff of General Winfield Scott. Dr. Wesley Moody, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you very much for having me. Why do we need a biography of Robert Anderson? The reason I chose Anderson and what your listeners may find interesting about being Seminole War people is looking at what happened at Fort Sumter. How the Civil War plays out could have been extremely different had the commander at Fort Sumter acted differently. His second in command was Abner Doubleday, who was a third Seminole War veteran. Everything that happens, every major event of the United States Army from when he enters it in 1825 to, well, the Civil War, Anderson's there. He's got a career that other officers, they miss out on a lot of things. You do not at everything. I jokingly sometimes call him the Forrest Gump of the Antebellum Army. He's there. He's at the Black Hawk War. He's in the Seminole War. He is, of course, in the Mexican War on the front line. In the peace negotiations, we almost go to war over the main Canadian border. He's up there with General Scott negotiating those things. Up in Florida in 1837, his background is very representative of what every Army officer has when they show up. I mean, his outlook, his way of thinking, his this is how we fight wars, this is how we manage an army. I mean, he, like I said, he represents the United States Army. And, of course, an army that comes down, and, you know, as your listeners know, this is not what they're trained for. You look at the antebellum army, and with the short side note of the Mexican War, mostly did dealing with Native American conflicts, and there's nothing in the training. There's nothing in the West Point. We're ready to fight Napoleon if he were to resurrect, but... It would seem Robert Anderson is an excellent topic for a biography. What are the challenges you're finding to try to tell the story of Robert Anderson? Unfortunately for me, I'm writing a biography of somebody with a very common name. So you put it in Anderson, 
you get the phone book sometimes. Uh, it's, a, it's too common uh, of a name. What can you say about Robert Anderson by considering his class ranking at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point? Some are last in their class, the GOATs, and have a mixed bag in the Army. Some graduate at the top of their class and have a mixed bag in the Army. How did Anderson do? His class ranking, he wasn't the top, but he was close. He was like eight. Eighth in his class of how many? If it was a class of a thousand, very impressive. If it was a class of 20, maybe not so impressive. Only about 47 in the class of 25. Yeah, he wasn't the top, but he wasn't the bottom. Yeah, he was commissioned into the artillery, into the third artillery, and which does spend a lot of time in Florida. He's he's over Sherman, who also uh, was in the third artillery. But uh, I was going to say one of the wonderful things about uh, Anderson is he was a huge letter writer, and especially his wife, Mrs. Anderson, Eva, he wrote her, he was constantly writing. His daughter pulled together basically all his papers, all his wife's papers, and gave them to the Library of Congress. So all of his Florida experiences uh, are there. The only, and this is uh, an annoying thing, and I don't know if it was easier to read when ink was fresher, but what he would do is he'd write a letter and fill up the paper back and front. And then once he had done that, he would turn the paper sideways and then write page three across page one and then flip it over. So you have a four page letter on two, two pages, basically. And it is a nightmare to read as it's been faded. It's been a number of times, you know, zooming in and zooming out where I've taken pictures and... The fact that he had to flip the paper over and continue on in the open spaces tells us something about the supply of paper at that time frame. You're stationed down in um, someplace down in Fort Lauderdale, and the only access is a little steamboat coming down. You've got to make use of what you have. As well, this was a paper army, and I don't mean that in the, the paper tiger sense. I meant that anybody who's been in the military knows it's a massive bureaucracy, and Century Army is exactly the same. Massive amounts of reports have to be sent in. None of it's computerized, obviously, all of it's ink and paper, and so that's priority. So paper, ink, goes to military reports first, letters home, uh, obviously secondary importance. I actually had not thought of it that way until you asked, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I was just thinking about the shortage of paper and ink down there on the frontier. How similar are how similar are Anderson's observations about life in Florida during the war to other soldiers in their letters? So it's not that different than what other soldiers are writing. It's a lot of complaints. As a native Floridian, I used to hearing people that moved down here and they complain about the humidity and the heat and the bugs and a lot of that. There's no complaining about military ideas. By the time he comes in, uh, he comes in in 37, 38. Uh, we're not searching for the big battle anymore. He's kind of got, and might say, an awkward position. And this comes out a little bit in his letters. His wife is the daughter of General Clinch, Duncan Clinch, one of the first generals of the Second Seminole War. And by the time he comes in and he's serving under Jessup, we've abandoned a lot of Clinch's ideas. Clinch was the Scott School that we're looking for the you know, the grand battle to you defeat the Seminoles in one big battle and they all, okay, well, we'll go to Oklahoma. And obviously that doesn't work in Florida. And so 
he can't overly praise the strategy of what we're doing now in 37 and 38 because it's an insult to his father-in-law and he doesn't want to cause those kinds of family problems. Unfortunately, like I said, a bit silent on the big military issues. Circumspect, yes. He worked under Winfield Scott and so had that influence. There any evidence in the letters that he got any influence on military matters from General Clinch, his father-in-law? Whether he was able to learn anything from Clinch, there aren't any letters between the two men. So any conversations like that were done in private at Clinch's home. And I think the two men were pretty close. Uh, definitely whenever he goes someplace, was sent out to Wisconsin to fight the Black Hawk War or sent down to Florida to fight the Seminole Wars or when he goes to Mexico, Allie sends the wife and children to live with her father to stay with Clinch living uh, down south of Savannah by that point. We lose Clinch to the Georgians. Now we know where General Clinch was at the beginning of the Second War because he was instrumental in it taking place. Where was his son-in-law, Robert Anderson, when the Second Seminole War broke out? So he was in New Hampshire when the war began. He was stationed up at Fort Constitution, where he was actually doing what he was trained to do at Fort Constitution, New Hampshire, keeping up with the cannons and training artillerymen and that type of thing. He's not transferred down to Florida until 37, and he is like all of the 3rd Artillery when they're sent down to Florida. They're infantrymen when they're sent down here. So obviously the, the Seminoles aren't going to stay in one spot long enough to allow us to shoot artillery at them, so here's your rifle, or here's your musket. Anderson arrives in Florida in time to participate in the Battle of Loxahatchee. Was that his first taste of fire? That was not his first major battle, Wakahatchee. He was at the Battle of Bad Axe that ended the Black Hawk War. He was actually a bit of an experienced Indian fighter when he came down here. Well, for like a lot of men, the battle down there at Fort Lauderdale is obviously his biggest battle of the war. And once that is over, it's as it is for a lot of men, a lot of patrols, some with success and some just out exploring the woods of South Florida and coming up with nothing but a lot of bug bites. How long does Anderson stay in Florida? He does two years down here. Anderson may have a cumulative two years in Florida, but it's not all consecutive. He's back there in the 1840s for some time. And in fact, leaves for the service in the Mexican War with his old commander, Winfield Scott, from the base at Fort Brooke in Tampa. He misses the first battles. He is with Scott, the invasion that goes to Mexico City, and he is severely wounded at the Battle of Molina del Rey right before the, the big Battle of Mexico City. What do his letters tell us about how happy or unhappy he was about his time in Florida? I think what his feelings are about the war, from reading his letters, he said he's a bit circumspect about all of it. He's not happy, and I think this combination of the Seminole War, the Black Hawk War, he's not a fan of Indian removal. And he's seeing the suffering of women and children, seeing the forced displacement here. I think his view of what's going on in Florida, his view of Indian removal, period, is a little more of our modern sense of this is a tragic thing. His first stint in the Florida Wars came to an end when he was called to serve with Winfield Scott, who'd actually moved out of the Florida theater. His service in Florida is cut short because he's pulled up to be an aide to General Scott in command of the Trail of Tears, moving the Cherokee tribes out to Oklahoma. So he gets to be a witness of that terrible thing. He really he emerges from all of this with a kind of a souring of 1830s, 1840s politics, 
and just a sense of the effect war has on civilian populations. When you're dealing with Indian wars because it's a people and it's not an army that goes off to battle, I mean, the women and children are always close, you probably get a sense of that more, the suffering of civilians, of non-combatants than you do in other conflicts. The effect this has when we get to Fort Sumter, when we get to spring of 61, he is doing everything he can. How do we avoid war? How do we avoid this turning in, into massive bloodshed? Well, the Civil War is going to be what the Civil War was. And his Florida experience, I mean, I really think it, it made him a bit of a pacifist. Seeing the horrors of war, how it affects civilian populations, and it's something we need to try to avoid. And a lot of his actions at Sumter showed that. He had command over the overall area, but he stationed his headquarters at Fort Moultrie on the land side. And then he moved it to Fort Sumter on an island. Why did he do this right before hostilities commenced? He moved his command from Fort Moultrie on the landward side to Fort Sumter that's, of course, in the middle of Charleston Harbor because it's less likely to be attacked. In 61, he's in command of the entire area of Charleston, which is several different fortifications. He's at Fort Moultrie. It's built to defend against a seaward attack. It's built for when the British fleet sails into Charleston Harbor, they can get blown out of the water. For a landward attack, terrible situation, terrible position. But that's not what we were expecting. Uh, to defend against the South Carolina militia, nothing could have been worse than Fort Moultrie. One of the things he complained about in his letters is the local cows kept wandering into the fort. Now, if you can't keep the local cows from wandering into the fort at night, obviously you can't keep a determined enemy out. So he moves his command over to Fort Sumter with the idea that they won't attack him at Fort Sumter. You won't have the South Carolina militia do something rash, and if they attack, he has to defend. And then we've got war, and it's unavoidable. So you go sit out there on that island. He made that move to keep war from happening. And of course, South Carolina saw it completely different. South Carolina saw it as an act of aggression because it was in a better position to fire on the city, which of course is not what his thinking was at all. Looking back to the Seminole War Service of Robert Anderson, a fellow officer who also had his doubts about the wisdom of Indian removal or the justice of it, was Ethan Allen Hitchcock, who wrote extensive memoirs that are very influential for researchers. And he also knew Anderson. What can he tell us about Hitchcock and Anderson? Anybody that's doing any research on this period, Hitchcock's memoirs are wonderful, very detailed uh, during this period, very personal. Uh, and I don't think he liked Anderson. What you have in that antebellum army is definitely an army that is being dominated by Southerners. The Southerners are getting the best positions. They're the ones that are getting promotions. So men like Hitchcock are a little frustrated by that, naturally. And obviously, when the Civil War breaks out, it's a, you know, that's obviously an issue. All your senior people are Southerners. Men like Lee get the best positions, that type of thing. So it's problematic when Civil War breaks out. What state or region is Robert Anderson from? He's a Kentuckian, born and raised in Louisville. Right. His his father was a Virginian, but his father was his father was a Federalist, uh, and then a Whig. And his his brothers, I mean Kentucky, you can kind of divide. Uh, his brothers all went with the Union. 
His brothers were all very anti-slavery. His older brother was an American diplomat. I worked very closely with John Quincy Adams, so that kind of puts him in bad with Southerners. He had a brother that was the mayor of Cincinnati, and he had a brother who had been down in Texas when the war broke out and had been kicked out of Texas because he was a Republican. His family was decidedly pro-Union. Obviously, his wife's family, the Clinches, were Southerners, Georgians, Floridians. He has a couple of brother-in-laws who are generals uh, in the militia generals uh, in the Confederate cause during the war. He tries to take kind of that middle ground. He is sympathetic to the South. He feels that it's the North that's brought on the conflict, that the South is being done wrong during this period, but the war and secession and all of that is wrong and should be stopped. So politically, really is where a lot of generals were in, in those first years of the Civil War. And it's the attitude that President Lincoln had so much problems with, with guys like Meade, guys like McClellan, that they'll fight the war and they'll win, but we don't want to win too big because if we if we crush the rebellion, the Republicans will get their way. So yeah, he really is a man torn between loyalties there, family and way of life as well. He was a guy that his idea was to kind of do what, what his father-in-law had done collect land, collect property, collect slaves, and when his military career is over, retire and be the great master of a plantation like General Quinch had been. He liked to see that way of life stay, but he was definitely pro-Union. And they put him in command at Fort Sumter probably with the idea that he would go with the Southern cause and kind of surprised everyone when he stayed pro-Union. Because you have the Buchanan administration and his Secretary of War, Floyd, really put the North in a bad position when war breaks out because of where he stationed people and where he sent equipment. And the federal arsenal at Chattahoochee was unbelievably well-stocked at the beginning of the Civil War, considering what the situation was. So the question of loyalty is not, the question of loyalty is not so cut and dry. Well, you're exactly right. The question of loyalty is very complicated. It's a lot more complicated than just where you happen to be from. Florida sends 2,000 men to fight for the Union during the war. Anderson's torn as a Kentuckian, which way do you go? Lee was torn, which way do you go as a Virginian? Uh, Of course, uh, Admiral Farragut is a Tennessean. And obviously, he has a huge effect. Uh, a Ohioan by the name of William Tecumseh Sherman, he's pro-Southern. Uh, he goes down to Louisiana. He is in charge of a military academy down there that eventually becomes a Louisiana State University. He very much had Southern sympathies. His wife, very Catholic, very anti-slavery, kind of probably pushes him more to the Union than others, but definitely a man with Southern sympathies. And as I mentioned earlier, the Army as an institution was very Southern. When you went to West Point and you got that West Point education, a lot of the, I say, myth of the antebellum South was was West Point. You know, it was taught the gentlemanness and the you know the the cavalier society. I mean, that that was what West Point stressed. So you can see a graduate coming out of that institution being a bit pro-Southern, as Sherman was. Uh, and definitely, yeah, Sherman uh, comes out of the Civil War as the great demon, the great evil to Southerners. But yeah, it definitely goes in with a uh, much more sympathetic to the Southerners than a lot of Union generals were, definitely, uh, than Grant was. Sherman 
Sherman is an interesting character. Uh, I actually wrote my first book uh, about General Sherman, and I think Sherman probably more than uh, a lot of generals at the time, and, and I don't know, that may be an extreme, but he was a bit of a careerist. He's a union man and all of that, but I really think he's looking at his career, and the Civil War is a career builder, and the way you become the head of the United States Army is obviously to stay loyal with the U.S. And I think he is, having been in Louisiana, I mean, I, I think he accurately predicted very early on, things are not going to go well for the South. They're not going to be able to win a conflict with the United States. There's a term careerist that you used, Wesley. Is it a pejorative or is it a good term? I'm not sure how they used it back then. I don't mean that as that's a bad thing. Being practical what we are. And his career is definitely marked by uh, somebody that's being practical. When the war first broke out, right before the Battle of Manassas, the brother had arranged for him to meet President Lincoln. And he goes and he talks to Lincoln, and he's assuming why he is in there is to give a report about what the situation is in the South. Because here's an army officer who'd been in Louisiana. I mean, he knew what was going on. And Lincoln expecting him to show up and try to get a, a position as a general. And in that conversation, we'll agree Look, I will come back to the United States Army. I will do what you want me to, but do not make me a general. And from the very practical idea, he was thinking the men who are generals first are going to fail, you know, because an army is going to have to be built. It is going to have to be trained. There's going to be a lot of stumbling along the way. When you want to be a general is a couple years into the war. So he made sure that he was given command at the right time. Obviously, being in command of winning armies at the end is the way you get your career going. But while everybody else was pushing to the front to make me a general now, he was pleased to So, very practical. We know Anderson had a varied career since his graduation from West Point in 1825. As you said, he served just about everywhere before the Civil War began. After he surrendered Fort Sumter, what became of Anderson? After Fort Sumter... Anderson is given command of the region of Kentucky, Ohio, the whole Ohio River area there, that command, with the idea of raising an army, setting the defense of the area. I mean, it's a massive area, massive amount of people that he was given command of. He asked, I'll take the position, but I want as my seconds in command, William Sherman and George Thomas. And Thomas, of course, was a Virginian who stayed loyal to the Union during the Civil War. And so those were his two seconds. And the stress of, of that command, uh, Anderson has a nervous, we think have a, has a nervous breakdown and retires from the Army at that point. The stress of Sumter, the stress of the Kentucky command uh, was just too much for him. Sherman ends up inheriting the command that gave Robert Anderson a nervous breakdown. And so he's trying to pull everything together, this massive massive organization and the secretary of war comes out to see him he started laying out to the secretary of war what the situation was he explains he tells him this is how many men we're going to need to hold this area just to hold it this is how many soldiers we're going to need if we're going to advance if we're going to go on the offensive and he was talking about numbers in the hundreds of thousands at this point. Now, as it turns out, what we know about the Civil War as it progresses, he was actually being very, very conservative 
in the numbers he was putting forward. He was right about what was needed. But the Secretary of War, on hearing these numbers, thought this guy's crazy. And he wrote back in the letter to Washington, this guy's nuts. And that's what gets out to the press. And on top of it, Anderson, he's kind of a, I hate the stereotype, but he's a stereotypical redhead, full of passion. And when he talks, he waves his hands and moves around and is just, he's not a calm guy. And so he's delivering this message about how many hundreds of thousands of troops we need while he's waving his hands around and moving real quickly around the room, fidgety and everything. And I thought he was nuts. And he was actually, you know, that was just his temperament. But his numbers, he was pretty accurate. Uh, He was pretty right on about what was needed. If you just read everything he was suggesting, okay, yeah, we'll give you that. You're probably right. So there was an overall expectation that it would be a quick war, whichever way it went. And anything contrary to that was really not what people wanted to hear. They weren't ready to hear Scott's conda plan and these professional soldiers who were saying that this is going to be big the amount of bloodshed that it actually was nobody wanted to hear that so many people we can win this quick one battle of manassas we whip the confederates and it's over people on both sides were thinking that the problem with general winfield scott it's not just strategically that his anaconda plan was not what we wanted to hear at the time Scott was saying the war is just not worth it, period. Scott was seeing the trouble with Reconstruction already. He was looking that far down the road. And what Scott understood is you've got people that are willing to fight to leave the Union, and once you go in and you drag them back into the Union, kicking and screaming, killing you know thousands and thousands of people doing it, what do you do then? How do you pull everything back together then? I mean, do we have a big group hug afterwards and everything's fine? He just saw forcing the South to stay is, in the end, not going to work out well, even if we are successful militarily, which obviously is not what Lincoln wanted to hear. Scott had his own ideas, but President of the United States tells him this is what needs to be done. Scott does to the best of his ability to uh, do it. Uh, And when Scott, yes, he is a professional, and even though he had his own ideas, he did not think fighting the war was a good idea. However, when orders are given, we are going to fight this war. As the true professional, he carried it out. I mean, he did what had to be done. And beyond that, just as loyalty to the Union, to his years of service, when Scott retired, he went to Europe. He took a tour of Europe, and when Scott went to Europe, he was a massive celebrity. This is a man that he was a hero of the War of 1812. He was hero of the Mexican War, great general of the Mexican War. And he toured Europe. And when he toured Europe and he had chances to meet the heads of states, he made sure, you know, take them aside and you do not want to back the Confederacy in this war. He was playing diplomat when he was in Europe, making sure that Europe either backed the United States or at least stayed neutral. He has a meeting with Queen Victoria where he is praising the Lincoln administration and making sure that they're on the right side of this conflict. So even as a private citizen, he is being a professional here, being loyal to the cause. As you might can tell, I'm a little bit of a Winfield Scott fan. Scott's most famous for the battles he fought, most famous for Mexico, most famous for the battles of the War of 1812, but probably where he has his most effect on U.S. history and where I think he has the most effect on Anderson is 
in the 1830s, when there's a potential for a conflict with Britain again over the Canadian border, it is Scott that is sent up to the border to keep people of Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont that were causing problems along the Canadian border, that were aiding rebel groups in Canada. Um, he kept them in line and worked out a peaceful settlement with the British over Canada, cementing the line there. So kind of a combination of being diplomatic and showing strength. Uh, and, and I think that's what Anderson takes away from the most. I mean, Anderson, I think what he learned the most from Scott is watching him as a diplomat on that Canadian border. Even in Charleston, if we can get to a point, and, and it was, he was always hopeful, if we can just keep the bloodshed from happening, if we can just keep people from dying here, the politicians can still work it out. They can still reach some kind of agreement in Washington. We just have to keep blood from flowing. He had this idea even once the firing started. And of course, you can't see it today if you go to Fort Sumter because so much of it was destroyed. But it was a three-tier building. And on the very top, you had artillery that was, I guess you'd call it open air. There was no casement over it, no ceiling over it. And those were the guns that had the longest range. So when the firing at Fort Sumter began, those were the guns that would have done the most damage. Would have maybe powder out of Fort Moultrie, would have been able to fire shot into the actual city of Charleston. He did not let any of his men go up and fire those guns on the top because they could have been killed up there. And he knew that once the U.S. Army soldier died, there was no going back at that point. So Fort Sumter's pulling its punches during that battle because he's, the number of shells that, that's fired, the number of shots that are fired during that first three days of the American Civil War, nobody's killed. And his actions, even past when the shots are fired, is diplomatic. As long as we can avoid doing anything that'll start a war, as long as we can avoid killing anybody or having our own people killed, the politicians can still work something out. They can still avoid a conflict. All of his actions from the time he is stationed at Fort Sumter is doing his job. He's been told old until relieved, uh, but at the same time, not doing anything that's going to cause war or make it impossible for the diplomats to got some kind of arrangement. Now, we know, of course, that doesn't happen. We get four years of very bloody civil war, he saw himself as kind of that point man that I can keep this from happening. And the difficult situation of really not having very clear instructions from the Buchanan administration. And then once the Lincoln administration came in, they didn't know whether or not they could trust him. So they didn't know how much to tell him and how much of their plans to let him know. Yeah, his orders were ambiguous. Nothing was clear. The Buchanan administration is there until in March. Buchanan's a difficult one to kind of wrap your hands around. He's pro-Southern. He is definitely has an administration made up of Southern Democrats. The old saying is he saw this as completely and totally the Republicans' fault, completely and totally Lincoln's fault. He just wanted to retire and let them deal with it. I'm done. I'm going home to Pennsylvania. He didn't want anything to change. So just everything stays the same. So President Buchanan, in denial didn't want anything to change, but things were changing. How did that affect Robert Anderson at Fort Sumter? Fort Sumter, the problem with Anderson is that included the handover of forts. He enters into this agreement with South Carolina that you won't attack Fort Sumter, we won't attempt to resupply it. And so 
Anderson's left hanging out, not going to be resupplied. We're running out of food. We're running out of firewood. And anybody that's been in, in Charleston in the wintertime, it can get cold on the water. Munitions, obviously, everything else running out. And when Lincoln comes in and Lincoln gives his uh, first inaugural address and he says, we're going to hold what is already ours. We're going to hold our possessions. Then after he gives that speech, he is told by his staff once he gets to the White House, well, actually, Fort Sumter has about a week of supplies left. Maybe you shouldn't have said that. And in modern presidential elections, as soon as a candidate gets the nomination of a major party and has a good chance of winning being president of the United States, given the top secret briefing, they're given you know, national security briefing, all of that. Uh, and that is because of what happened to Lincoln. You know, if Lincoln had known Fort Sumter had seven days of worth of supplies, he might have said a few different things than he did. At this point, Lincoln administration comes in. We've got to do something about Fort Sumter. We don't know if we can trust this Sanderson guy or not. He is a Kentuckian. His father-in-law owns slaves. He's got property down in Georgia. So they tell him as little as possible. His orders are not to surrender. His orders are from when he was given the post, hold until relieved, and it never changes. Where these ambiguous orders first come in is he's sitting there, he's putting Fort Sumter in a position to defend himself, but he's watching the South Carolina forces themselves in a position to attack him. He's watching them build up their artillery. And the commander of on the other side, uh, the, the conventional Confederate commander, is PGT Beauregard. Beauregard had actually been a student of Anderson's at West Point. So Anderson knew the newest stuff that came to artillery. And he can't fire. He can't, he can't take aggressive action. He can't do anything to prevent what is basically him being encircled. Now, the Lincoln administration is going to make the effort to resupply Fort Sumter. They're going to send in food, water, munitions. I mean, everything that the fort needs to hold out. They send the ship in. And it's fired upon. They're really the first shot to the war. Men are, I mean, to return fire. I mean, there's a, a ship flying the flag of the United States being fired upon, and we sit there and we do nothing. The Lincoln administration was actually hoping that he would give the ship covering fire uh, so it could get into the harbor. But nobody tells him that, so he doesn't, which makes them question his loyalty even further. And it's at that point in South Carolina, the Confederacy decides. If they're going to attempt to resupply Fort Sumter, it has to be captured. Uh, it has to, and so that's when the actual battle begins. But even then, even they're firing onto the forts, pulling the punches. He could have leveled Charleston, probably. He could have made Charleston look like what Charleston looked like in 65. Those top-tier guns, those big, heavy coastal defense guns, they could have been turned on Charleston easy enough. It's a round fortress. Most of your guns are facing that direction anyway. The fortresses were built because you had Sumter, you have Moultrie, Castle Pickney, they kind of form a triangle there. And the idea was that the British would try to run the gauntlet there. And when they did, they'd be caught in this murderous crossfire. So you do have guns already in place facing the city. And if he'd chosen, yeah, he could have done bad things, very bad things to Charleston. With his surrender, what became of the munitions that he had on the fort? His munitions, he's running short by the end of three days of pretty constant firing. What was so key about Fort Sumter's location? Fort Sumter sits in the middle of the harbor, and what the Confederates did 
is they had batteries right there at the water line in front of the city of Charleston. They have guns at Fort Moultrie, which is north of the fort. They have guns to the south of the fort, built in the wooded areas southeast of the city of Charleston. So his shots were counter-battery fire, firing at the guns that are firing at him. He's firing at combatants. He is not firing at non-combatants. So these are clearly defensive actions that he's taking. How did that go over with his number two? Now, his second in command, Abner Doubleday, he may have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder when it comes to Southerners and how he was treated at West Point and all of this. But Doubleday was suggesting that they fire on Charleston to show the Confederate forces, if you fire at Fort Sumter, if you try to attack us, you have this very vulnerable target nearby. And not only was he not firing on the city as just like a terror tactic, but between what, where his position was at Fort Sumter and the city of Charleston, there were Confederate batteries built there on the, on the water's line. He had guns that would reach those. He wasn't firing at those batteries for fear that his shots would go over and hit the city. So he's not only just not choosing to fire at Sumter because it's a non-military target, he is not firing in Charleston's general direction because it might hit the city. While Anderson spared Charleston, the Charleston batteries didn't spare Fort Sumter. Tell us about the impact on the fort from the batteries firing from the shore. They cannot get resupplied. Fort Sumter is pounded for three days. The barracks catch on fire. They get into a position where they can't continue fighting. Confederates send someone across to meet with him to talk terms. At that point, he realizes he can't fight on. The term that they give him, he will surrender the fort. None of his men will be captive or prisoner of war camps or anything like that. They will all be taken on a ship to the north, which of course they are, including Anderson, and that he will be allowed to, of course, bring his flag down and properly salute it, and everything will be done in a respectful military way as he leaves. Was this a surrender to the South Carolina militia or to the Confederate States of America? Who is running the show? Beauregard is the overall commander. Uh, so it's the Beauregard he surrendered. He surrendered to the Confederate States of America. Okay. And it was one of those things, and I was saying that they have this ceremony, they're bringing the flag down. U.S. forces are saluting with their cannons as they're taking the flag down. The protocol at the time is you fire one shot for every state of the Union. One of the cannons explodes when they're firing the salute to the U.S. flag. And two men are killed, and they're the first men killed in the Civil War when this cannon bursts firing a salute. 23 states stayed loyal, and so as they're bringing the flag down, it actually bursts, and it bursts on 23rd shot. A little symbolism there. So the men get evacuated. What type of reception do they get when they arrive in New York? They're taken back to New York. He's a national hero when he gets back. Even though he surrenders, this is probably one of the great ironies, because he comes back, he sees himself as a failure. He sees himself as he had done everything he could to prevent war. So Anderson surrenders the fort and feels like he's a failure. The people at the reception in New York have other ideas about what he did. What the majority of the northern population saw. And it's a situation we've had for decades that northern politicians have constantly given into the South. Compromised, compromised, compromised. And then here we are in Charleston. They demand Fort Sumter be handed over. 
And Anderson says no. I mean, it's not the whole picture, obviously, but that's the way the people in the North thought. Here's a guy finally, after all of these years, saying enough is enough. No, you can't have it. And he's a national hero for it. And the fact that he is fired upon, the flag is fired upon, really, it fires up the nation. They forgive him for surrendering because, yeah, the fort's on fire at that point. Cannon's blamed for it. Everybody is blamed for what happens at Sumter but Anderson. They see Anderson as a man who is his duty, and we've got to rally around men like him. The flag has been fired upon. The way that plays out, that national outpouring of patriotism, we've been attacked here, that allows Lincoln to mobilize the country for war, a Pearl Harbor moment, if you will, that had Anderson played it differently, we wouldn't have had. Had he been more aggressive at Fort Sumter, we wouldn't have had that moment. Had he surrendered at Fort Sumter, we wouldn't have had that moment. His experiences in Florida and other places of just seeing war, that little bit of pacifism there is what steered him on that course. And when I teach my students my U.S. history course and we talk about the Civil War and I probably go more in depth than Anderson than they, they care to hear, but one thing I always point out to kind of you know, bring it back to Florida, while Fort Sumter is firing on Fort Moultrie and Fort Moultrie is firing all of the, the Americans are at war with one another, all these white people are killing each other or attempting to, a silent witness to all of this is Osceola. Osceola is buried right outside Fort Moultrie. And I always wonder, I mean, he probably is taking a little bit of pleasure in what's going on there in April of 1861, because these are his old foes. These are the people that, that took him out of his land, and they're killing each other. So I always wonder what he would have said. Out of the various options in front of Anderson, where does this one stack up, the one he actually exercised? What happened at Fort Sumter, April of 1861, was the best way it could have turned out. For the United States, obviously, in the long run, period. And I say that because had it happened differently, I had the Union fired the first shots, had the Union compromised at Fort Sumter, had it happened any other way except for the United States forces attempting to stand strong, being attacked by aggressive enemy, the war doesn't play out the way it does. The famous saying, and you can get a, a debate going among Civil War historians about who said it or did anybody say it, of the whole, I will drink every drop of blood spilt in this conflict. That supposedly several Southern politicians said this. It's not going to be a war. Yeah, give me a hank. I'll wipe up all of the blood spilled in this war. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, they're not going to fight. Nation of shopkeepers. Um, that is a prediction that I think, had Fort Sumter not played out the way it did, might have been true. We're just talking about politics at this point. Plenty of Northerners saying, let them go. Why should we force them to stay? Uh, once Fort Sumter's fired upon, are we safe with them as an independent nation down there on our border? They've attacked us already. So the will to fight may not have been there without Fort Sumter. Now, I'll say that, and I'll let me give a, a warning there. You always got to be very, very careful when you start talking about what is history, because there are just so many variables in anything that had it not played out this way, who knows? Uh, but it does play out in a way that brings ultimate Union victory. Who knows? Maybe if Fort Sumter had not played out the way it did, we'd be talking about the importance of Fort Pickens and Pensacola and how that was the key to the war. 
we see clearly a northern view on Fort Sumter and whether the capitulation was the best of outcomes possible. What did the Confederates think, either then or in hindsight? From the Confederates' point of view, there's mixed opinion there. Among Confederates, there were those that, all right, let's get this thing going. Uh, you know, it, it, it's time to be aggressive. We'll meet them on the battlefield and show them, you know, they can't stand up uh, against us. Uh, so there were those that we wanted war and we wanted it quickly, and that was the only way to have success. There were those, Jefferson Davis was among the group, that if we can get this without shots being fired, we're not ready for this. We're not prepared for this. Why get through war what you can get without war was the idea uh, of a lot of Southerners. Uh, and obviously, it doesn't play out well for them that they're now facing war against a motivated enemy was definitely not the best situation for the South. How important was it to public opinion that the South had fired the first shot? And when I say public opinion, I mean in the nation as a whole, as well as for nervous Europeans. With the Europeans, you talk about public opinion in the North, in Europe, that you know, the importance of having fired the first shot, that is huge. You're definitely right. And in Europe, in trying to get aid from the European countries, being the aggressor nation uh, counted against them. When it came to persuading Europeans to their cause, what were some of the problems that the Confederacy had in making the case? Yeah, a number of things went against them when it came to Europe. Slavery is huge, and Lincoln made sure diplomats played that up in Europe, especially you know, the working classes in Europe are a little sensitive about that issue. To make a comparison between Lincoln and Davis, Lincoln was definitely the great war president compared to Davis. Lincoln sends his best people to Europe to try to keep the Europeans out of the war as best as possible. Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, took a different tack to handling ambassadorships to European nations. Official recognition, all of this. Davis saw the opportunity of ambassadorships to Europe as a way to get rid of troublesome people, get rid of people who would criticize him on the home front. The southern ambassador to England spit tobacco on Queen Victoria's rug. That's it. You know, there's no way you're English help when you spit on Queen Victoria's rug. I mean, come on. There were probably southerners that could have been sent that might have had a great of success in Europe. We just South didn't send them. They sent the political troublemakers. For the court of St. James, the ambassadorship to England or Great Britain, Lincoln chose somebody with a distinguished pedigree who would not be spitting tobacco onto Queen Victoria's drug. That person was Charles Francis Adams, whose father and grandfather, of course, had both been ambassadors to that post. Lincoln sent Adams. You could not have sent a better person than Adams. Knows international diplomacy. Knows how the, the international games are played. Knows how you're supposed to act in front of royalty and the elites of Europe. And brilliant man. Just a brilliant man. He understood how important that position was. His war was important as the battlefield war. And once again, you try to avoid the what is history, but if England had joined the war, it would have been a naval war, but it's completely different. A British Navy opening up the blockade in the South changes the entire war. And the British were very understanding of that, that they were vulnerable in Canada. And there were points in the war where they were shifting troops uh, into Canada. They didn't want to be caught flat-footed if a diplomatic situation turned into war with the United States. In all of this, what do we need to know about the people of South Carolina? 
For South Carolina, not to be harsh on South Carolina, but South Carolina's got a massive ego. And, you know, the old saying is, you know, North Carolina is a valley between two mountain egos, Virginia and, of course, um, South Carolina. And they really saw themselves as an independent republic, as good as anybody else. Charleston is their main harbor. Fort Sumter, where it sat, if it wanted to, it could it could shut the harbor down. Nothing comes in and out of the harbor without Fort Sumter's allowing it to come in and out of the harbor. And the fact that they could fire on Charleston at any moment in the middle of the harbor, beautiful view of Charleston and the areas around it. And not only are the guns of Fort Sumter within range of the city of Charleston, it commands the port. Uh, the whole reason for the port is there is to command the waterway, the ship channel. So no ships can come in, no ships can leave without Fort Sumter's say-so. If you're a city like Charleston, everything goes by ship. No major railroads. And if you're South Carolina, and South Carolina's got, got a massive ego. I mean, they are declaring themselves an independent republic at this point. And for them to have a foreign nation, as they saw it, having control of their major port, their only port, for a foreign nation to have a military post there that could strike at their major city I mean, it's just unacceptable. I mean, it's a slap to the pride of South Carolina. And if you're trying to say you're independent, it proves the falseness of that. There's another nation that has control there. They saw it just the same way as we would see it today if the Chinese had a post in New York Harbor with gun emplacements. I mean, unacceptable. So they could not leave it there. It was just South Carolina honor and the argument that they were independent and as good as anybody, it put the lie to that. Now, the Confederate government, President Jefferson Davis, is trying to tell South Carolina, be patient, we'll get it diplomatically, we will get it politically, uh, but they wouldn't be patient. Uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't wait. We want it now. We can take it. And they really – they didn't see there would be blowback for that. They didn't see the harm for just going and – and taking it. Obviously, they're wrong. They didn't muck out their way, but there was too much control with having Fort Sumter. Reminds me of a musical song. What do you do about a problem like Fort Sumter? What choices did South Carolina have? I don't think they could have left it. I mean, they could have. They could have left it. They could have, they could have starved them out. I mean, good grief, it was another week. Uh, and they were probably in a position that the North would have had a difficult time putting a fleet through to relieve Fort Sumter. So, I mean, I guess you can look at it. The garrison at Fort Sumter has Charleston by the neck, has South Carolina by the neck, and definitely vice versa. And for South Carolina, for, for Governor Pickens, it was just unacceptable to have somebody in that position. So militarily, they're not thinking militarily. They're thinking they're thinking politically, they're thinking diplomatically, and they're thinking pride and honor as well. It, it's just it go it's a it's a smear against South Carolina honor to have those Yankees sitting out in the harbor. What historical comparison from US history does Fort Sumter remind us of looking back today from the twenty first century? I mean this from the standpoint of shock and impact on the American populace. Pearl Harbor is the good comparison in history. Pearl Harbor moment. It was outraged that we're very much caught completely and totally unprepared in Hawaii. Yeah, and it was anger that we're caught completely and totally unprepared in South Carolina. 
Anderson's in an impossible situation. And with the Second Seminole War, this was coming. And it was, uh, this was boiling for a while. All the signs were there, and you know, kind of stepped right into it, didn't we? So there are similarities there. And, of course, Dade's a national hero. He doesn't know it, obviously, but um, he's not able to get the accolades that Anderson did afterwards. The similarities are there. And from World War II, Lieutenant General Wainwright held out in the Philippines against the Japanese onslaught. He eventually was held captive by the Japanese for three and a half years. Anderson, of course, spent almost no time in captivity and was immediately released to a ship that brought him to New York City. I think the argument goes maybe he held out longer than he should have. Really, much longer than any of our European allies held out against the Japanese in similar situations. I think the major difference, if you want to talk about Wainwright versus Anderson, is it was in the interest of the United States to make Anderson a hero in 1861. I don't think it was in the interest of the United States to make Wainwright a hero in 41. We don't want to talk about Wainwright. We want to make MacArthur a hero, and we're trying to motivate the public toward a war in Europe at the moment, more than the war against the Pacific. So surrendering Fort Sumter, not a career ender for Robert Anderson? He is given a major command. He is given Department of the Ohio. He is given basically everything west of the Appalachian Mountains is his department, a much bigger area than uh, McClellan will have the same time. He was put in position to be the great commander of the war. His health just didn't hold up to it. I think today we'd call it stress-related. He never quite recovered from being seriously wounded in the Mexican War. It made him a little more fragile health-wise. He, like so many Army officers, got malaria when he was down in Florida, and he would have bouts of that. And then just the months at Fort Sumter in those wet, freezing conditions causes malaria to give him problems, and just the stress. And it was kind of just a, everything coming together. And in command in Kentucky, 24-hour days, organizing everything and the sense of it could happen any moment, he basically broke down and just couldn't take it anymore. He asked to be relieved. They gave him a couple minor positions, command of a, I think he goes back to Fort Constitution in New Hampshire, and that's, if you're having health problems, a stone fortress in New Hampshire is probably the worst place they could send you. When did he ask to be relieved? He asked to be relieved early in 62. And General Sherman took his place. Like I said, he had a couple of very small fortress commands up in in New England. I mean, where no chance at all of of seeing combat. I think he was completely out of the Army by 63. They retire him out, and unfortunately for him, after Fort Sumter, he was given a brevet generalship. So he was volunteer general is the way they worded it. He wasn't given a regular army promotion to general. So when his health failed him, he retired on half major pay. So he actually ended up retiring to France after the war. 66 or 67, he goes to France. He was born in 1805. He'll die in 71. It's hard to think about this now, but apparently France was a cheaper place to live, at least especially cheaper than New York 
in the 1860s. So he goes to Nice, and, well, there's a little problem there. Everything Clinch owned was seized by the federal government. Family lost everything in the Civil War. They actually tried to use Mrs. Anderson, uh, her brothers did, tried to use her name to get their property returned to them because, you know, she's the, the wife of Robert Anderson, American hero. Uh, but he ended up uh, losing pretty much everything during the war and ending nearly penniless. And probably one of the great ironies of the war is right – about investing in the worst possible thing in the worst possible time right before the war broke out. He had invested heavily in southern railroads. He owned big chunks of a lot of the railroads that General Sherman tore to pieces. Sherman's bow ties, and they were never able to recover. Companies obviously went out of business after the war, and with it, Anderson's money. So, what's your preliminary verdict on how history remembers Robert Anderson? I think there was a sense among many that he uh, served his duty. There were those, and I think historians have done Anderson wrong in a lot of ways of looking at him as a Southern sympathizer, because he was a Southern sympathizer. You just look at his writings, and you just look at the things he said, yeah, the North was doing the South wrong, uh, according to Anderson. Now, if you just look at his actions, he did his duty. So I think a lot of historians look at what he wrote instead more than what he did. Anderson did have a brief coda to his military career. To show how Lincoln thought of him, they bring him out of retirement for a very short period. After Charleston falls, they bring him out of retirement, they send him down to Charleston, and they have a ceremony putting the flag back over uh, Fort Sumter. 1865. They bring Anderson back. He puts the flag back up over Fort Sumter. That evening, they're having a, a dinner in Charleston to celebrate the end of the war, the flag going up. And while they're having that, Lincoln goes to the theater in Washington, D.C. How do historians view Robert Anderson if they do view him at all? This is one of the reasons why I'm working on this biography. I don't think they view him. I think he's kind of a forgotten man. I don't think his contribution is given nearly the credit that it deserves. And when you consider how much is written about the Civil War, the fact that this is a biography that hasn't been written is kind of surprising to me. How's your research been going on this biography? So I have been out in Kentucky, in Louisville. They've got what's called the Filson Center. It's a little private library there. And they've got the family papers there. So they've got a lot of his early years, his father's papers. A lot of that's there for his early life. I have gone through a lot of autobiographies, uh, men who've served in the Army at the same time he has. Even if they're not talking about Anderson directly, they're living the same experience that he is. And, of course, at the same time, the different conflicts he's in, the different, I've, I've gone in-depth. I'm just finishing up the section on the Black Hawk War. Read everything has been written on the Black Hawk War pretty much. A lot of primary sources on that. His daughter as well, at the Library of Congress, they have his papers, the Robert Anderson papers. Everything she was able to collect, everything from his, I mean, his West Point diploma up to the letters he's writing home and applications for retirement funds that he's writing from France. I have been there and spent a very long time photographing the documents. Obviously, I'm in Florida. I can't keep going back and forth to Washington, D.C., so I photographed everything, boxes of documents there. I'm going through them. I get to a section of his history. I go through his papers for that section. Leave it there. We're out of time. Dr. Wesley Moody, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Oh, well, thank you for having me.
you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.